millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What do you do when you see gender injustice and then can't make yourself unsee it? Well, if you're a leading feminist lawyer such as Jocelyn Scott, you dedicate your life to fighting it. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. Been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again. Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. And to those of you who might be new to Broad Talk, a very warm welcome. Please come on in and join our ongoing Broad Talk conversation on Facebook, in our group, the Broad Talk Roundtable, or on Twitter at Talk Broad, or one word, or you can find me most days at Virginia underscore House, H-A-U-S-S. But right now, I want you to meet Jocelyn Scutt. Gosh, where to start? This is a big broad conversation where we amble over gender issues and chew the fat on women's progress. And frankly, we also do a bit of catching up after decades of not being in touch. A fierce feminist lawyer and human rights campaigner, I first came across Jocelyn way back in the late 1980s when she was one of Australia's most prominent female barristers. In addition to her relentless push for legal reforms to end discrimination against women, Jocelyn also churned out countless books on feminist themes. As a young journalist, I found her books incredibly thrilling and perhaps even a bit life-changing. She wrote about challenging social norms and growing up feminist, the splendours of a free and autonomous life as a singular woman. And she tackled taboo subjects such as fertility and the pressure to breed in her groundbreaking book, The Baby Machine. Throughout her long career, Jocelyn has continued to write with great conviction and authority about women, power and sexual politics – and most recently about the laws around women's bodies and cosmetic surgery. 
Once the Sex Discrimination Commissioner in Tasmania, then a High Court judge in Fiji, Jocelyn now lives in Cambridge in the UK, where she's a member of the English Bar, an elected councillor on the Cambridgeshire County Council and a member of the British Labour Party. In her 70s, and just as energetic as ever, Jocelyn is still teaching law these days at Buckingham University. And just a note, we recorded this conversation just before the Australian March for Justice movement really hit our media headlines. Jocelyn Scott, it is such a delight to be joining you uh, today. Thank you so much for joining Broad Talk. Well, it's wonderful to be on Broad Talk, Virginia, and lovely to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been a long time, and I really look forward on uh, to reminiscing a little bit about um, some of the things that I first encountered you doing way back in, in Victoria, in Melbourne, Australia, um, a couple of decades ago. In fact, I think we go back three decades ago. But first up... As I'm asking everyone in this series, our opening question to you is gender equality, are we there yet? How do you respond to that? Absolutely not. I think that we've made wonderful advances and that all the women have made the, the advances today are, as of course we must acknowledge, doing it on the shoulders of the women of before. But there's still a terribly long way to go. I mean, if we're still concerned about criminal assault at home and other forms of domestic violence, if we're still recognising that there is no equal pay, if we're still recognising that there are women under the concrete canopy, that is, who haven't even got the chance to see the sky and to be concerned about the glass ceiling, then I think that we certainly haven't achieved gender equality. It's actually quite disturbing to hear you say that, Jocelyn, because you, of of all people, you really have dedicated most of your working life and thinking life, I think, to the pursuit of gender equality, in addition to your work in law, of course, and human rights, but specifically gender equality, feminism, and the role and position of women. Um, You've written about this for decades and decades and decades. Given what you just said then, are you not are you not optimistic? Are you not seeing good progress around you? Oh, I'm always optimistic. I mean, I suppose that, I mean, one has to be. That's true. But there's always something to be optimistic about. I'd never be pessimistic about where we are. I'd just be realistic in that we've got a long way to go. I mean, I do remember thinking in the 1970s when women got active, following on from women who'd been active before them, there was this idea that we'd simply draw up a list of what was wrong and then we present it to those who were in power, of course, the men who were in power, and they'd say, oh, gosh, we didn't realise, and they'd fix everything (laughs) because we'd said this is what's wrong. And then there came the realisation that, no, that's not quite how it works. Funny that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I think... I I mean, I'd like to pay tribute to a couple of the women I know who are no longer with us, but I think about Di Graham, with whom I worked really solidly in the women's electoral lobby, and Val Buswell, with whom I worked really solidly in Australian Federation of Business and Professional Women. And I do think, particularly when Di Graham died, thinking how she'd worked all her life for equality for women, And we all thought we would make real, real changes. And there she was. She was dead. And 
though we'd achieved a lot, we'd never achieved as much as we wanted to achieve. And I think it's really sad in one way that we know that we will all pass on and there will still be women left, fortunately, to carry the torch, as they say. But we've got to be realise that the changes are so huge and enormous that it is a lifetime of work that each of us has to engage in to make sure that there are improvements that we need to have and on the way towards equality. But you are seeing some uh, improvements and major changes, aren't you? I mean, even just in, in the... Uh, the number of women we're now seeing in positions of leadership and political leadership uh, around the world, not just in, in, in this country in Australia or in the UK where you are, but around the world. Absolutely. There's no question about that. And I suppose that everybody would remark upon Kamala Harris as the first woman vice president of the United States and also um, Africa. African-American and from the Indian continent as her origin as well. And, of course, that's fantastic, but we all would have been absolutely over the moon if Hillary Clinton had been the Mm -hmm. president when she ought to have been. But I think that measuring only in terms of the women who were prominent or have reached the pinnacle, as it were, is not recognising that there are so many women who remain oppressed and we have to remember that instead of simply looking at the women at the top who are wonderful in in what they've done, that's for sure. But uh, isn't just, and uh, look, these are really simple questions and I'm just asking this to sort of kick us off, but isn't the fact that there are so many more women at the top and women in leadership positions and and leading governments, aren't they making a a significant difference to the myriad of of issues and concerns that that you've been fighting for over decades and decades in terms of women's position, empowerment, economic opportunity, etc.? It isn't just the simple fact that we've got more women there making a big difference? I think uh, two responses to that. I think it is actually vital that we do recognise that there have been changes. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I, when I was on the Law Reform Commission in, in Victoria, I was really appointed to make real changes there. It was a new body. It had come out of a body that was simply one commissioner. And I can remember I went into a meeting of the commissioners with my list of 10 that were to be achieved, these marvellous changes. And when I came out, I'd achieved, I don't know, six probably, and I got on the phone to my sister, Robin Joyce, and said, it's absolutely terrible, I'm a failure, it's dreadful, I've only achieved six out of 10. And she said to me, Jocelyn, you've got six out of 10. What you do is you make up another list of 10 and you put those the four that you didn't get on with the new six more and you go back into the next meeting and when you've achieved another six, including the four that you didn't get this time, there will be another four that you have to include <laughs> in the next list. And that's true because too often when we don't get 100% of what we think we need to achieve, we think we haven't achieved anything. And I think it's mm-hmm. absolutely important that as women and in the women's movement as activists, we always have to recall what we have achieved. I think that's absolutely vital. But at the same time, I think too that we need to remember, as I said, the women who have been left behind, the women who haven't been included Mm. in these huge achievements. And when we do see women 
impositions of power and authority. We always remember too that sometimes, I mean, they're still fighting a tremendous battle mm. and they're not going to win every battle either. But mm. we tr would trust that they do win sufficient battles in order to clear the ground for others who are coming after them. I want to um, unpack some of those specific issues, particularly around women and violence and economic opportunity in a moment or a little bit later. But I just want to come back to what you said about achievement, because it reminded me straight away of something that you said in one of your really early books. And I must admit, I've had a lovely time over the last couple of days pulling your books off my bookshelf. I've got about eight of them. And that's only a tiny portion of what you've written. But it, it took me right back to, quite frankly, you know, I guess the 90s. Um, when I was reading everything um, that you were putting out at the moment, at the time, because you were the only person that I, I knew of who was really writing for young women in Australia at the time, and I'm referring, of course, to your fantastic book, Growing Up Feminist, in the mid '80s that came out. I had just started as a as a journalist, and I, I gobbled that up. And then ten years later, you brought up at, brought out a second volume to that, Growing Up Feminist Two, and then one that I just wanted to make reference to in relation to what you said about achievement. This is um, As a Woman, Writing Women's Lives, which I think came out in around 93. You, um, you actually say in the opening, when you're talking about the need for women to be bold, extraordinary or ordinary, or ordinary or extraordinary is, is the title of the chapter, and you say, success and achievement like power and ambition are words falling uneasily from women's lips. Women are reluctant to arrogantly project themselves. And then you go on to say a little later, women must learn to recognise our own success and achievement as important. Do you think that's still the case, though? I mean, you wrote that over 30 years ago. Is that still? Do women still struggle with that? I think some women are more easy with the notion of power and being in positions of power and recognising it's not power over that we want, it's power to do positive achievements for ourselves and for, for others. But I think, too, there's still possibly a notion that women shouldn't be ambitious, that there's something wrong with ambition. Although I do notice with the students that I have that they are prepared to um, understand and believe that they will become judges eventually. I always say to the classes I'm teaching, now, when some of you become judges, this, this and this are the ways that it's important to address the issue without fear or favour, etc. And I say that deliberately to put the idea in their minds, but there's no response of, oh, this would never happen to me or I could never mm. achieve that. And I have students from all sorts of countries, from the African continent, from the United States, from Canada, from Middle Eastern countries. And although they are not all obviously the same because of cultural difference, I think there probably is more of a an ability to recognise that we have a right to achieve and a right to be ambitious. But understanding that you've got the right and, and honouring our sense of ambition is one thing. Actually being able to experience that and live that is a whole nother, isn't it? Absolutely. And I remember doing 
growing up feminists, the new generation of Australian women. And the way, I have to say this, the way that Richard Walsh, who took it on from Angus and Robertson, just immediately said he'd publish it. There was no question in his mind. He hadn't even read a word, but we talked about it. But what struck me about the young women in that book was that they had wonderful ambition and they did want to achieve and they could see a wonderful world ahead for them. And all I thought was that when they come up against barriers and obstacles, which they will, we have to be there to help them over and to help them understand and realise that it's not their fault because I did think they had fantastically... Uh, fantastic expectations, some of which would be dashed. There would be no question of that. But it's that have the expectations because it's better to expect 100% and achieve 75% than have 50% and get to 50%. What's the point in that? It's so much better to have, um, um, really to quote Shakespeare, a man man's reach must exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for and a woman's expectation must exceed her grasp or what's a heaven for and that heaven is where we actually do ensure that the grasp is not exceeded that in fact we grasp for the hundred percent and reach it but Mm. when the shocks come which inevitably occasional shocks will come anyway there needs to be support there that recognizes that that is what happens, but that you move on and pick yourself up and get on with it. But there has to be support to enable young women and older women and women of any age to do that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, Jocelyn, when you brought out that book, Growing Up Feminist, and that was in the mid-80s, as I said, and as I also said, I was just starting out in my career. In fact, I'd just joined the ABC TV newsroom in Melbourne as a a news cadet, and it was all very exciting in 1985, 86. And I I did read the book, and uh, but but like other young women then, I assumed, and we're talking, what, 36 years ago now, but I assumed that... Everything was fine for me. I'd been through university with no problems. I'd been through a school that had encouraged girls to do anything. I really did think I could fly to the moon if I wanted to. I didn't see any major issues for me 
at all in terms of of career and and my right to flourish. I had no concept at all that 35 years later I would be banging my head against a wall saying I can't believe we still have a major pay gap for for example with that that women are still not participating in the workplace in the same way men are that women are still badly or poorly represented in our parliaments as as we currently are in Australia I, I just wouldn't didn't believe then that that we would be having these conversations and yet we are we're actually saying a lot of the same things. Oh, I think that's right. And I mean, women from the 18th century, from the 17th century, from the 19th century were saying the same things we are. It's not <laughs> It's not new. I mean, that Christine de Pizan, who, to whom I often refer, she was 1600 and something, and she was saying these sorts of, of, of things, raising the same issues. And I think that it's simply that the same issues are there, but we have moved on and achieved some elements. I mean, take, for example, the end of the 19th century and there was this uh, pretense that rape in marriage was not a crime. I did my first doctoral thesis on that issue, substantive and evidentiary issues of consent in rape. And it was a lie because, in fact, the Chief Justice Hale, who just said, well, rape in marriage is, is not possible, it's not a crime, and then there was a case, the Crown and Cl- Clarence, that was used as authority for that too. And when I went back to the Crown and, Cl- and Clarence, it had been misrepresented all the way along. And so, uh, but you see also what had been misrepresented was that the notion that women weren't concerned about it and women were Mm. and they were speaking Mm. out and even if you think about um, some men were because John Galsworthy in the Forsyth saga and the rape of um, Irene by Soames that whole scene comes out of the Crown and Clarence I've got no doubt about that and the same with Ibsen in A Doll's House he's actually writing about the realities for women not being able to borrow under their own name therefore uh, she has to forge her husband's signature which is what or gets her into the the problem the dispute that arises where she's being effectively blackmailed but all those issues were being raised but I think it's that they're raised and they come back again and again. But when they come back, we have achieved a, a level that's above what was in existence in the 16th, the 17th, 18th century. We'd hope so, but it, it is interesting that um, issues such as the so-called backlash, for example, that was talked about in the 1980s in media and, and even in the 90s um, to indicate that the women's movement was dead and that had been killed off by a backlash. And I know you were you wrote a lot about this at the time and spoke publicly about it, and I've got a feeling I might have even interviewed you at the time. Um, and you were making the point then that look the backlash is nothing new women have been fighting against the so-called backlash for um forever and the the issue you raise too about um rape also reminds me of uh another story i did as a journalist back in i think it was the early 90s raping marriage in south australia the famous case about rougher than than usual handling in a marriage was okay or deemed okay by a judge which at the time became a really big story um you know is it okay for a man because 
a couple's married to treat his wife with physical rough handling during sex because she is his wife. And that was actually debated. I, I, my head spins to think that we're even having that discussion, but we did. And I'm afraid that it's it's not really stopping, is it? Because we have the instance in um, Canada where I think it was a police officer who said that um, it was all the fault of the women who dress like sluts. I mean, I don't think the word slut can be recovered, but some women do, and we part company on that. But um, I think that, unfortunately, there are people who do achieve the role of judge and who are just simply not particularly... Right. But just back on the backlash, what I would like to say about that too is that what really exercised me was the notion that somehow the women's movement had gone dead. Now, this comes around time and time again. They say, oh, well, there's a backlash. And then they say, well, the women's movement isn't in existence anymore. And I'm really rampant about the notion of the waves of the women's movement. It's absolutely Mm. false. And unfortunately, women and women historians fall into the trap of actually just simply uh, repeating a patriarchal lie. And the reason that this is said that there are waves of the women's movement is actually to distort what really is happening and to cover up the fact that women are always active. When I I did a thesis on equal pay, I must turn it into a, a book. It's because, and in that thesis, I pointed out that the notion that women in the 1950s had somehow gone home and just weren't active was absolutely false. And in terms of the struggle for equal pay, the women of the 1950s were in fact more effective and more active than the women of the 1960s. But the 1960s are projected as a period of great activism, as they were, as were the 70s. Sorry, can I, sorry for interrupting, but can I just unpack because hmm. there's a lot, of, a lot of information in that. But are you suggesting, though, that, I mean, I always think of the waves as, as we, a way of describing the, the sort of the dominant um, focus at the time that, the, of course, women have been active forever, but there are different focuses uh, and different challenges that are taken up by the majority of, of activists at that time, and that's what a wave really is. But but are you suggesting that that's not the case, that things when we talk about second-wave feminism and third-wave feminism and now fourth-wave feminism, which is very online, very active, etc., uh, that, that it doesn't exist, or are you suggesting it's just a, it's an incorrect way of describing it. It's absolutely false because where what is the timeline that one's going to adopt? For example, first wave feminism is supposed to be everything that happened before we got the vote, I suppose. So there's hundreds and hundreds of years in first wave feminism. And if people want to say it was just the struggle for the vote, then what they're doing is writing out of history all the women before that struggle came to fruition who were actually fighting and struggling like Christine de Pisa. And I just raised her name because it's one that I know. But there was a woman who was at, at the University of Bologna back in in the 19th century because she was cited in the Jex Blake case, even though the judges still in the House of Lords said, well, there were no women at university, which was patently false, and they'd be given her as an example. So, yes, 
okay, well, that's first wave feminism. Then when are we going to say second wave feminism began? Oh, so that was in the 1970s. So that means that between the 1970s and when we got the vote in Australia in 1902, eventually, I mean federally, we know that, that South Australia got it in 1894 or 5 and Western Australian women got it in 1899. But the point is, okay, so what? We're going to say that there was nothing in between 1902 and the 1970s when women are depicted as a second wave? And then are we going to say that nothing happened between 1970 and whenever the third wave is supposed to have happened? And and then there are generations of women that cover across those lines. Um, mm. We're not all the same age. And, and because when I got involved in the women's movement, I was much younger than a lot of women mm. who were in the women's movement at that I take, time. Yeah, I, I take your point that, that certainly activism has always been there and that issues that, that, that impact women now have always been issues that women have cared about and fought for. Um, but, it, but it's interesting to say that the waves themselves didn't or, or aren't relevant. But look, before, I, don't, I want to, don't want to spend too much time on that, but I want to come back to you though and as you say you, you got active I think when you hit universities in the 60s and late 60s and certainly when you went to the United States in 70s and started looking for activism and looking for female well activism um, a, a women's movement and went went searching for it until you actually found it can you just take us back a little bit to your very early experience what what motivated you back then when you first hit universities as a law student? Oh, it was long before that because the first word I recognised from my childhood is career. My mother <laughs> talked about career all the time and how important it was to have a career. And I can think I was five when I got this image of myself walking up a particular road in Hollywood, this is in Perth, going to visit my grandmother, maternal grandmother, who constantly was falling over and breaking her hip, and she was at the Hollywood Repatriation Hospital. And my mother was talking to my sister and I about career and how important it was, and I know exactly where we were living at that time. That's how I can identify my age. But we were lucky in my family because both my grandmothers were really active. My um, maternal grandmother was went to the first Labor Women's Conference ever held. That was in Western Australia in 1910, and she was a delegate to that conference. And my other grandmother was extremely active too. And I've got a, a, a she she was in India. Her father was a colonel in the Indian Army, and she was a really strong woman. And then my mother was extremely egalitarian. My aunt Nita was, and my father was also very intent on the idea that we, there were three girls, Robin, Jocelyn and Felicity, and he was intent that we should have opportunities and so on. And I know there was a period when I wanted to be, well, mother was a kindergarten, so I had kindergarten, then I had journalism. And my father said, talked about a woman who'd been a journalist in the front in the war, and therefore he was encouraging me down that line. Well, in the end, I, I came and became a lawyer. But throughout my whole life, I was very clear that there were issues that as women, we had rights and we would, however, struggle for them. But if I can say quickly this, 
the problem was that even though I had that really strong family background, the irony is that I thought I was different. I thought that there was really something very peculiar about me because I had all these <laughs> ideas. And it was only when, when I got to university, to the law school, there were four women in my year and all the rest were guys. I mean, 60 or 200, or I've forgotten many of them. But And two of those women, two, two women had been told that they couldn't come into the law faculty straight away. They had to come through the arts faculty because they didn't have Commonwealth scholarships, whereas myself and my other colleague did have, Carolyn McCusker, had, we both had Commonwealth scholarships, so they hadn't been able to keep us out of the law school. Now, all the boys in the law school did not have Commonwealth scholarships, and yet they were in the law school and there wasn't that distinction being made. But but with stark differences back then, did, did you, you, you say you thought there was something peculiar about you because you had all these ideas. Were you frustrated? Were you angry about the clear differences and discrimination around you in terms of, of gender? And, and the way that men were treated so differently from women, did that enrage you? To a certain extent, I suppose one thought it was peculiar and also so odd and comical in one way. And because I love reading, I mean, if you're a reader, you're really advantaged because there's so much that you can read that actually... I suppose it's transporting, but it's also affirming. But I also know, and unfortunately women can fall into this trap too, that when I was at the law school, I thought that uh, myself and my other colleagues who, who were in the law school were, well, you know, we were on about law. And the women from the arts faculty that the boys, of course, brought to the law school functions, one just thought, oh, well, they're in the arts faculty and ho-hum. Mm. But when I went to the States and I was at SMU, Southern Methodist University in, in Dallas, in Texas, and that was when the penny really dropped that I'd be talking to a group of women. I was reading Malcolm X and all the the, the African-American literature at the time because it was really important to do that, particularly living in Texas. But I'd be talking to some of these wonderful American women, tall, lithe, with, you know, really very just just really impressive young women and we'd all be talking together and suddenly they go from these really activist speaking stage into some sort of daffy daffiness and it was then that I realized that a man had come on the scene and they changed their whole uh, demeanor from being really engaged, really intellectually engaged in issues into some sort of a popsy. And yeah. that was when I realised that those women in the arts faculty had not been popsies. They had been equally intelligent and uh, no doubt strong young women. But because of uh, patriarchal notions as to what women should be, they'd fallen into uh, the trap, I suppose, of conforming. But it was one way of, of surviving. Jocelyn, I, I've just learned a new word, popsy, and I think that's going to be my favourite word. <laughs> I love it. Look, I, but this this is interesting because when I first met you, I was a journalist, as I said, and and um, I think in the late eighties, early nineties, and you were the only woman 
I I knew of um, in public life. You were a, a barrister in Victoria. You were the only woman that was was doing that role that I could see. You were very outspoken. You were really groovy and cool, and you wore shirt, short skirts and big boots and and fishnet stockings, and you know you, you really were unstoppable. Um, and and I've watched you over decades, although lost track of what you were doing the last decade or so. But you, your career has been extraordinary. You've just pushed on. You produced. I've actually lost count of the number of books you have produced. I think there must be over thirty now, um, and that includes a lot of books uh, specifically on feminism. But you moved on, of course, to become a, a, a judge of the High Court in Fiji. You were the um, anti-discrimination commissioner in Tasmania. You have been on a number of international bodies and committees. You've been a, a leading human rights barrister. You're now also, as I said earlier, a, a county councillor. Um, you've you've been a filmmaker, a documentary maker, a public intellectual, a whole bunch of things, a change maker, what I would call a renaissance woman. But all of that time, you've been alone, you haven't married, you've forged on as, as a single woman, and even actually in one of your books, Singular Women, you speak about the joy of spinsterhood and the joy of autonomy, economic independence, the freedom for women. How important has it been for you to do all the extraordinary things you have managed to do and achieve? How important has it been to to be alone and single and and uh, autonomous to to do all of that. I think well, the point is I've never actually really been alone in that I've got such really good solid women friends and I mean I'd I'd have to pay tribute to Kerry Hubell with whom I became active um, when I was on the Women's Advisory Council in New South Wales. That was at the time that Frank Walker was the Attorney General and Neville Rand was the premier and Kerry identified me it must have been at some conference women and sport or something like that and as a consequence I got onto the women's advisory council and then of course my two sisters Robin and Felicity and then when I was in Tasmania well before then in Victoria Pat Marder Ambika Pathy the Raisingham and then Karen Baczynski Lee One of the points is that if you are a single woman and single people, single women, are actually far better off because, you see, we make really strong, solid connections with people outside what I call the um, ARC syndrome. You see, most human beings actually are persuaded by the ARC syndrome that they must have a partner and if they don't have a partner that there's something wrong. The animals went in two by two to the ARC and therefore we human being animals, human animals must have a partner inevitably. And I have always been of the view, I suppose, that I was myself and I didn't want to be in a beholden situation. And the other point I really recognise is that marriage or partnerships in that na- in, in that category are institutions. And however much people wish not to be trammelled by the institutions, they have all sorts of ideas about egalitarianism within the relationship and so on. But the institution of marriage is enormously powerful and what I thought was if I ever get hitched that I'd find myself one time at the breakfast table 
And who would have done the breakfast? Me. Who would have done the laundry? Me. Who would have been doing the washing up? Me. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that because even though I'm very, very strong, I think the problem is that there are institutions that are extraordinarily strong and they tend to stultify the development of human beings. I mean, I've had the great love of my life and, of course, that proved to me that I was human. But fortunately or unfortunately, he was in a different country and therefore I just think that if you're going to try to change the world, you really have to do it in your own country. You can't do it in somebody else's. And so that was, you know, a wonderful part of my life and a wonderful experience, but a very fortunate one too because meant I could have the experience, but then, of course, I could get on with my life and do what I really thought was important. And I think that if you see injustice, you can't do nothing about it. And if you're going to put your energy into the issues I have, you can't expect somebody else to actually put up with it. I mean, if I say, right, tomorrow I'm off to the US, you can't really be in a relationship and do that because you've actually got to give some notice, surely. (laughs) (laughs) Jocelyn um, this is a bold question but I'm going to ask it of you anyway do you regret not having children oh see I've got some wonderful nieces and I've also got a wonderful I'm the earth mother to um, Xanthi Hubel the daughter of my colleague and friend Kerry Hubel and I think that I've had all those advantages of all those children that Mm. I've had all the glory of it without the, well, I have done nappy changing. I can remember (laughs) changing the nappy of one of my nieces, Kate, and being, I was in my house in um, Sydney and being almost in tears because I couldn't make this nappy fit on (laughs) properly. And she really, although she was a baby, she did understand my absolute distress that I really couldn't (laughs) get this nappy on this child's body. But, yeah, I mean, I've had all the You're not the first to struggle with that, believe me. You're not the first. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was. (laughs) Not at all, not at all. Uh, Jocelyn, I'm going to have to wind it up in a moment, but just coming right back to our theme of gender equality and we we touched on at the beginning and talking about progress and you, you said you're optimistic you have to be. But as you look forward um, into the 2020s, do you feel at all buoyed by the activism and feminism that you see around you, both in the UK, here in Australia? Uh, do, do you get a sense that, that we are on the brink of something bigger in terms of women's progress? I would say I, I think I think so because there there's incremental achievement, isn't there? That things build and build, and suddenly it's like um, the the water coming across the top of the of the weir. And I think that there is that chance. I think though that we all always ought to be aware that things can go backwards, and also that we don't forget about the women who haven't had the advantages or all the advantages that that some of us have had. I think if we just go back to the equal pay, because now I'm putting in a plug for my book, Wage Rage, I think that you see there is this idea, well, there is equal pay and we've got it. And even when those cases were run in Australia, which were really groundbreaking, but about the the effort to ensure that librarians, that hairdressers, that um, childcare workers and so on, 
gained equal pay. There was a notion that equal pay had been gained. Well, uh, some steps have been taken, but with nursing, with childcare, all those issues, no, they are not paid equally as they ought to be. And I think we need to go back and revisit that whole area and, and do proper uh, work skills value inquiries, as I was advocating together with one of my colleagues of uh, for years, and with Val Buswell, I worked on on that. And I think that I think that we can never just let go and be sanguine about what we've achieved. Of course, you have to have a rest sometimes. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Jocelyn, you know, COVID nineteen, the pandemic, and and the lockdown has really highlighted, I think, just how poorly valued women's work is. The lowest paid industries, as, as we have found, have been the ones that were hardest hit: the caring industries, the frontline uh, medical staff, teachers, etc. And the the those the, the majority of those losing their jobs have been women, but it, it's raised the issue again of or put a spotlight, I should say, on how women's work is 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 so undervalued or so less valued than than men's work. We've been talking about this. It's, it feels to me like forever, for decades and decades, and I'm not sure that we're actually, whilst we talk about it, and the margins of of the gap might change a little bit and then go backwards and then roll forwards. Really, we're not changing how we think or how, how we value women's work much at all, are we? No, and I think that just talking about COVID nineteen, you think I think about John Curtin and Chifley, Ben Chifley, in the Second World War. I think it was even nineteen forty two, and the Second World War wasn't even finished then. And John Curtin set up the Department for Reconstruction, and what he did have women who were involved with that. Muriel Hegney was one great woman in terms of the struggle for equal pay who's been overlooked. There's a woman in Victoria who's done a a thesis on her and I wish I could remember her name because she really needs to be paid tribute to for doing, for recovering Muriel Hegney, which I did, and she went on and did a thesis on her. But you see, What's happening with COVID-19, I keep on carrying on about it here with the City Council of Cambridge, uh, where my colleagues are, and I'm in the County Council. Well, of course, we're in a minority in the County Council. But the point is that all the, there will be money for reconstruction, recovery and renewal. And women have to be equally involved in actually rebuilding and determining how we reconstruct and we recover. And that really is not happening and it should be happening. And then in terms of the, the money that's available, women are by far the best at small business because women don't have visions where they have to get themselves into big limousines right from the word go. They actually realise how you build a small business and that's where a lot of the recovery, reconstruction and renewal money should be going and it should be going into women's business and we have to make it really absolutely clear that that's what needs to happen. And the second aspect of it is that what we've uh, has been recognised is that women have been suffering more and more from criminal assault at home and other forms of domestic violence. And yet the women's refuges have been destroyed and demolished and taken over by, uh, sadly, religious institutions, which are not going to be helpful to women. I know from my book, even in the best of homes, which came out in 1983. In that book, 
I had a section on the various forms of criminal assault at home and other forms of domestic violence. And the second half was about the possibilities, the police, the law courts, the psychologists, the family, this and that. And the only element in all of that that was worthwhile for women were the women's refuges run by feminists the feminist run refuges and that has to be re-established as a consequence of COVID-19 and what has to be recognized is that those refuges need to be there so that women have somewhere but also that we need what I advocated and even in the best of homes was that the women should be able to stay in their homes. And I know there's been some movement forward in that, but the women therefore need support networks that are available to them, like the women in the women's refuges who can actually come and make sure that the women are safe in their own homes where they should be, not they should that, that they should have to go out and go into a women's refuge. That's necessary sometimes, but where there is a marital home, they should be in it. And those areas, you see, are what we should be looking at in COVID-19. And that's what this episode should be telling us. And I agree with you absolutely. The problem is that the value of women's work is not there and women have taken up the slack. And that when women have lost their jobs, paid, but they're now doing exactly the same jobs unpaid. And the mm. final point I'll make on that is that in 2010, in this country, the United Kingdom, there was a coalition government between the Conservatives under David Cameron and the Liberal Democrats under Nick Clegg. And they brought in what was called an austerity budget. It wasn't just austerity. It was about chopping, cutting, gouging. right down to the bone, the services that should have been there and they worked on removing the grant from local government so that local government now gets no money in a grant from central government even though local government is supposed to be carrying out the um, policies that are set by central government and therefore, um, so what's happened, women have lost their jobs in the public sector but they're still doing them at home without money, without the proper supports. So number one issue really is equal pay, proper equal pay, uh, work skills value inquiries that recognise the value of women's work and and then also the issue of criminal assault at home and other forms of domestic violence, which is central and it's a global problem. I can certainly hear in your voice and your passion that you have a huge amount of work yet to do. Those books are going to continue to be churned out um, and you are such an extraordinary uh, producer of of not just books and content but you know, fi- films, podcasts. Um, you're unstoppable, Jocelyn Scott. What Just lastly, what what sustains you? Where do you get your energy from? Well, I suppose I've got a great sense of humour, which, of course, (laughs) saves women a million times. But it's also the, the supports that I have, the really good friendships I've got, the strong women that I have really good, firm friendships with that sustain me. And even though under the current circumstances it's impossible to be to be travelling. Uh, one of the glories of Zoom, I suppose, is that we can see each other on, um, on Zoom and so on, and also WhatsApp means that we can connect in that way. But I think it's, it's the, I suppose it's unlucky because I've got, I do have tonnes of energy, I don't need to sleep a lot, and, and therefore 
I suppose it's the energy that carries carries me along, mm. that I've got energy and I need to use it. I can't just simply fritter it away. And then I've got those images in my mind too of my grandmothers, my mother, my aunt and so on, and my father who was really important. And when you've got that in your background, you've got something really strong and solid that sustains mm. you. And also, oh, I'm not going to give up. Heavens, no, never because there is so much more to get done and to achieve and therefore I don't think it's possible ever to put down your, your pen. You've got to keep your pen in your hand and just keep going. And, and now that we have word, word processes and so forth, of course um, it means that our output can be ever, ever ongoing, ever ongoing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Jocelyn, thank you. You've just given me a huge shot in the arm. I feel so guilty about lying on the couch last night watching rubbish TV. <laughs> no, no, thank that's you. acceptable. I, read, I, I have to say I read stupid crime novels. That's my downfall. <laughs> silly, silly crime novels. It's not a downfall at all, not at all. Look, Jocelyn, it's been an absolute delight to speak with you and, there's, of course, there's so much more I'd like to discuss and hopefully we'll get an opportunity to do that down the track. But I really want to thank you for, for giving us the time and I know it's very late over um, where you are right now in Cambridge. So thank you for joining Broad Talk and uh, I look forward to many more discussions. Thank you so much. Thank you, Virginia. It's been wonderful to be on. Great for me, energising. Thank you. Well, I don't think Jocelyn Scott is in need of any more energy. She is prolific in her output and inexhaustible. Thank you, dear listener, for hanging in there for that long and at times ambling conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and perhaps even learnt a little. I know I certainly did. If you haven't subscribed to Broad Talk, please click subscribe now because I don't want you to miss the final few guests we have coming up in this series, some women whom I think you'll really enjoy hearing from. Meantime, thank you to Martin Pierce, my WBPP, world's best podcast producer, and a joy to work with. Until next week, thanks for your company and happy chatting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.